1889, this is what Mark Twain said concerning the Jews. He said, if the statistics are right, the Jews constitute but 1% of the human race. It suggests a nebulous, dim puff of stardust lost in the blaze of the Milky Way. Properly, the Jew ought hardly to be heard of, but he is heard of. He is as prominent on the planet as any other people, and his commercial importance is extravagantly out of proportion to the smallness of his bulk. His contributions to the world's list of great names in literature, science, art, music, finance, medicine and learning are also way out of proportion to the weakness of his numbers. The Egyptians, the Babylonians, the Persians rose, filled the planet with sound and splendour, then faded to dream stuff and passed away. The Greek and the Roman followed and made a vast noise and they are gone. Other people have sprung up and held their torch high for a time, but it burned out, and they sit in twilight now or have vanished. The Jew saw them all, beat them all, and is now what he always was, exhibiting no decadence, no infirmity of age, no weakening of his parts, no slowing of his energies, no dulling of his alert, aggressive mind, all things are mortal but the Jews. All other forces pass, but he remains. What is the secret of his immortality? That's a good question. Which is wonderfully answered for us in Revelation chapter 12. Another question that's answered in Revelation chapter 12 is, why is it that Israel has been so persecuted? The immortality of the Jews is even more amazing when we consider that throughout the centuries, continual and ceaseless attempts have been made to annihilate them. Throughout biblical and secular history, despots like Haman and Hitler, filled with fanatical hatred, have attempted the genocide of the Jewish people. And the Jews often stand before their history in somber silence, stunned and stunned and numbed by the unmitigated brutality against them, which actually shames humanity. Penetrating pictures of the Holocaust of World War II continually remind us of the relentless attempt to eradicate the Jews from the world. They have endured much travail, and their very survival is a triumph. But why has the Jew been so persecuted? What's behind it all? Well, that question is also answered here in Revelation chapter 12. In Revelation chapter 12, we are at approximately at the midpoint of the seven-year tribulation. And you can see that represented on the chart on the back of your outline. Um, if you can see it, someone says it should have been an A3 sheet so we can see it properly. But if you look closely, um, you can see we've come through the seven scrolls of judgment, seven trumpets of judgment, and brings us to the midpoint thereabouts uh, in the seven and a half years. Three and a half years have gone, three and a half years to go. Chapters 12 and 13 bring us to about the midpoint. Chapter 12 describes a great battle. There is war, that word is mentioned several times. There is fighting, that word is mentioned several times. There is conflict of cosmic proportion. Chapter has two main parts reflected on your outline sheet on the other side. Firstly, we see the participants in this conflict. And then secondly, we see the place or the places of the conflict and the outcome in each place. So let's proceed through our simple outline, beginning, first of all, with the participants of the conflict. 
as God draws back the clouds of heaven and reveals to John this staggering vision, he reveals to John and from John to us the participants in this cosmic conflict. The first thing that John saw in verse 1 was a great wonder in heaven. The English word for great appears several times in this chapter, verse 3, verse 9, verse 12, verse 14. Four great things described here. On each occasion, the Greek word is megas, from where we get our English word mega. Everything that John sees in this vision seems huge, either in its size or in its significance. And the first great thing that John saw was a woman, an unusual woman, a remarkable woman. Who is she? Well, if we keep reading, we get some clues. Verse 2, she's described as being pregnant. Actually, she's seen as being in labor, about to deliver the child. Verse 5 tells us that the child she delivered was the one who was to rule the nations with the rod of iron. That's a Old Testament prophecy from Psalm 2 verse 9. It's a prophecy concerning the Messiah. It's a prophecy about Jesus who, verse 5 continues, was after his resurrection caught up unto God and to his throne. We've seen Jesus on the throne of God in chapters 4 and 5. So who is this woman? Well, the Roman Catholic Church says the woman is the Virgin Mary. But that's not possible because the woman is described here as being a wonder. The Greek word for wonder is samion. It means sign. A sign is a symbol. A sign is a symbol that points to a reality. And if you note the description of the woman, it's clear that the woman that John saw is not an actual woman, not a literal woman. She's a sign. She's a symbol that represents something. Some believe that the woman represents the church. That can't be correct either because the church did not give birth to Jesus. Jesus was born and lived his life and died and was buried, rose again, ascended to heaven before the church was born. The church didn't give birth to Jesus. If you look at verse 2, note that the woman is described as being clothed with the sun and the moon under her feet and upon her head a crown of 12 stars. A fascinating description. Clearly the language is symbolic and it's a symbolism that we are familiar with. We've read it before. We read it the last time you read Genesis, chapter 37, verses 9 to 11. It's the language that Joseph uses when he describes a dream that he's had. A dream in which the sun and the moon and the stars represent his father Jacob, his mother Rachel, and his, the 12 sons of Israel, the 12 tribes of Israel. If you look at other Old Testament passages like Isaiah 26 and Isaiah 66 and Jeremiah 4, Hosea 3, Micah chapter 4, Israel, the nation of Israel, is often described as a mother in travail, delivering, giving birth. Thus, as we put it all together, scripture interpreting scripture, we must conclude, and it becomes clearer as we proceed through the chapter, that the woman spoken of here is none other than the nation of Israel through whom Jesus Christ came into this world. Israel is the first participant in this cosmic conflict. Then in verses 3 and 4, we're introduced to the second participant in this conflict. Verse 3, John saw another wonder in heaven, another Simeon, another sign, a great red dragon. Not a literal dragon, but a symbolic representation of a being who is clearly identified for us in verse 9 and in other places in the chapter as being Satan. Satan is not an actual dragon, he's actually a fallen angel. This is not a photo of what he looks like. If you see a 
visual description, picture of Satan, he's often pictured like that, you know, in a red suit with horns and pitchfork. This is not what he looks like. It's a symbolic representation of his moral character. Cruel and vile in nature. He's described as being a great dragon, which emphasizes his ferocity and his terror. His color is red. The path of his feet and the color of his hands is the color of blood because destruction and misery are his history. But it's not just that. Notice the other ways that Satan is described in this chapter. He's a major player in this conflict. Verse 9. He is called that old serpent because he is also, for all his ferocity and viciousness, he's also subtle and deceitful. And that's seen in the way that he beguiled Eve in the Garden of Eden, that old serpent. He's also called the devil. The word for devil is diabolos, false accuser, because that's what he is. He falsely accuses, he's a slanderer. He's also called Satan in there in verse 9. That's his proper name. It means adversary. Because that describes him as being the one who perpetually and always is opposing God and his purposes. He is the one described in verse 9 as the one that deceiveth the whole world. The one that Jesus says is a murderer from the beginning abode, not in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he speaketh a lie, he speaketh of his own. He is a liar and the father of it. John 8, 44. Verse 10 here, he's called the accuser of the brethren because his current work is bringing reproach upon the believers before the throne of God in heaven. If you go back to verse 3, he's described as having seven heads and ten horns and seven crowns upon his head. He is depicted as a seven-headed monster that rules the world. He is the God of this world, the prince of the power of the air. And he has been ever since Adam surrendered dominion to him in Genesis chapter 3. The seven heads and the seven crown represent seven consecutive world empires that have run their course under Satan's dominion. Firstly, there was the Egyptian Empire ruled by Satan. Then the Assyrian Empire ruled by Satan. The Babylonian Empire ruled by Satan. Followed by, fourthly, the Medo-Persian Empire ruled by Satan. Followed by the Greek Empire ruled by Satan. Number six, the Roman Empire ruled by Satan. And then the seventh and final kingdom, which is to come, which will be ruled by Satan via the Antichrist, which will have ten horns, that is a ten-nation, a confederacy of ten nations, over whom Satan rules through the Antichrist in the tribulation, and more about that in chapter 13. But if you look at verse 4, it is clear that Satan's evil influence is not limited to the human realm. Verse 4 says, And his tail drew a third part of the stars of heaven and did cast them to the earth. Who or what are the stars of heaven here? Well, if you keep reading down to verse 7 and verse 9, we see references to Satan's angels. If we go back to the Old Testament, Isaiah 14, Ezekiel 28, there we read about Satan's initial rebellion against God, Lucifer, tried to usurp the throne of God. The anointed error, uh, cherub that covereth, the highest angel in heaven, rebelled against God, tried to usurp his throne. And the Bible tells us that as a result, Satan and those angels that followed him in the rebellion were cast out of heaven. Clearly the stars of heaven referred to here are the fallen angels. The demon spirits were cast out of heaven when Satan rebelled. Now that rebellion and casting out happened somewhere within the time frame of Genesis chapter 2. But then in Genesis chapter 3 we see Satan, fallen creature, leading Adam and Eve into sin and in the same chapter, chapter 3 verse 15, we see God coming to a sinful man and woman, promising to provide them with a saviour, promising to provide them a redeemer, 
promising to provide a seed of the woman that would crush the serpent's head. Now notice the second part of verse 4. It says the dragon stands in front of the woman ready to devour, ready to consume, ready to eat up her child as soon as it was born. And this action on the part of the dragon is not new. In the Garden of Eden, as soon as Satan heard that God was going to send the seed of the woman that would crush his head from that day forward, Satan has been trying to destroy that promised seed. In the very next chapter, in Genesis chapter 4, he motivated Cain to kill Abel. But God raised up Seth to carry on the seed. In Genesis chapter 6, Satan caused so much evil in the world that God had to destroy the earth by means of a flood, but God saved Noah and his family so that the seed would come into the world. Satan motivated Esau to try to attempt to kill his brother Jacob, but God preserved Jacob. Satan motivated Pharaoh to destroy all the male children of the Hebrew families, but God saved Moses. Satan moved King Saul to try to kill David. He moved wicked Athaliah to try to destroy all the royal heirs in the house of Judah, bar one. He moved Haman to plot genocide against the Jews. Read about in the book of Esther. Every attempt failed. Every attempt failed. Time after time after time, he failed. Verse 5 tells us, that in the fullness of time, the woman brought forth the man-child. Satan was desperate, and so he moved Herod to kill Jesus. But the angel warned Joseph to take Jesus and Mary to escape to Egypt, and Satan was thwarted yet again. But then one day, when the Passover was being celebrated, Satan thought he had achieved the triumph that he'd been seeking throughout history. When the broken body of our Lord was wrapped in linen and embalmed with spices and sealed in the tomb, tomb, Satan thought he had a glorious success. But God is faithful to his word. God is faithful to his promises. God never changes his purposes. God's plan was that Jesus of Nazareth would rule the nations with a rod of iron. And so therefore, God the Father raised Jesus from the dead, took him up to his throne in glory where he sits in the position of all authority, from whence Jesus will return, every eye shall see him, every knee shall bow before him. And so Satan's triumph has turned to defeat. Clearly the man-child who was to rule the nations with the rod of iron, verse 5, is Jesus Christ, the third main character introduced in this chapter. In spite of Satan's attempts to prevent it, the woman, that is Israel, gave birth to a son. And the incarnation of the man-child, the incarnation of the Lord Jesus Christ, the mystery of Godliness, God manifest in the flesh, that was a fulfillment of so many Old Testament scriptures. It was a fulfillment of prophecy, Genesis 3.15. Fulfillment of Isaiah 7.14, Isaiah 9.6, Micah chapter 5, verse 2. It was a fulfillment of a promise that God made to Abraham that in you, Abraham, through you, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. Israel, the seed of Abraham, brought forth the Messiah. Satan couldn't stop Jesus from being born. He couldn't stop Jesus going to the cross. He couldn't stop Jesus rising from the dead. He couldn't stop Jesus ascending far above all principalities and powers, being exalted at the right hand of the Father as a perfect saviour. But though Satan is a defeated foe, he will not relent. He will not give up. Unable to stop Christ, Satan still assaults his people. Just before the tribulation, the church has been glorious, raptured into heaven, now far beyond his reach. However, during the tribulation on the earth, Satan will increase his 
intensity and his efforts to destroy the Jewish people. Why? So that God's promises and God's purposes will be defeated. So that there'll be no one left to call upon the Lord for salvation when he returns for the nation of Israel at the second advent. So that none might be left alive to enter into the millennial kingdom. Satan therefore seeks to destroy the Jewish people. In verse 6, in a brief glimpse of what's described more fully in verses 13 through 17, John noted that the woman fled into the wilderness where she hath a place prepared of God that they should feed her there a thousand two hundred and three score days. Forty-two months, three and a half years. God will frustrate Satan's attempt to destroy the nation of Israel during the last three and a half years of the tribulation by protecting the nation of Israel by preserving the nation of Israel through this tremendous period of conflict. Just as the Lord Jesus predicted in Matthew 24, he says, when you see tribulation coming, he says, flee to the wilderness, hide. But before we look at that at the end of the chapter, From verse 7 onwards, we're given some details about the place or the places of this conflict. The remainder of the chapter portrays two great conflicts, one in heaven, the other on earth. And though distinct, the battles are closely related. The first conflict in heaven, we observe, is a clash between Satan and the archangel Michael. Verse 7. There was a war in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon. The dragon fought and his angels and prevailed. The dragon fought and his angels and the dragon and his angels prevailed not. Neither was their place found any more in heaven. And the great dragon was cast out, that old serpent called the devil and Satan, which deceiveth the whole world. He's cast out into the earth, and his angels were cast out with him. There has been a war in heaven ever since Satan fell. Satan and his evil angels have been actively opposing the work of God and the program of God and the angels of God and the people of God. Satan and his angels have have been actively opposing. There's been a war, there's been a conflict ever since Satan fell. He is our constant adversary, he is our constant enemy. From then till now, it hasn't stopped. 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 11, we are told, we are told, we are warned, don't be ignorant of the devil's devices. In Ephesians chapter 4, verse 27, we're told, don't give any place to the devil. James chapter 4, verse 7 says we are to resist him. Ephesians 6 tells us that we don't wrestle against flesh and blood. We wrestle against principalities and powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. But now this war, here in Revelation chapter 12, this war, this conflict, this between supernatural beings and supernatural powers that's been taking place in the heavenly sphere, it now reaches its peak, its climax during the tribulation period. That climax, that future climax, that future conflict described here, we find Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon and his angels. As a matter of fact, the grammatical construction of that phrase in the Greek text indicates that Satan is the one who initiates the battle. could be translated, Michael and his angels had to fight the dragon and his angels. Michael in the scripture is described as being the archangel in Daniel chapter 10 and Jude 9. The name Michael means who is like God. It's a rhetorical question that stands in stark contrast to Lucifer's attack upon the Lord where he said, I will be like the Most High. Michael is seen in the scripture as the guardian and the protector of God's people, the nation of Israel. Daniel chapter 12 verse 1 makes that clear. 
here he see, see here we see him fulfilling his role on the behalf of the nation of Israel. The Bible doesn't tell us how angels fight, nor does our limited understanding of heaven and spiritual truth about the heavenly realm, that doesn't permit us to speculate. But there's something that we do know for certain. We do know for certain what is the result of this cosmic conflict. It says that Satan and his angels, that's his demon spirits, are defeated. Verse 8. They prevailed not, neither was their place found anymore in heaven. In other words, they were cast out of heaven, verse 8. They were cast out into the earth, verse 9. Now we know that Satan and his demons were cast out of heaven as their home, the moment they, of their original sin. And yet the Bible indicates to us that they still have some degree of access to heaven. Think about the book of Job as they are called to give an account before God. We know that Satan appears in heaven to accuse us before the brethren, accuse the brethren before God's throne. That's going on, has been for a long time. But now at this point in time, at this point in time, having been defeated in this battle, they are now cast out permanently. They're denied access to heaven at all. Neither was their place found any more in heaven. In other words, they're banished, they're barred from the presence of God in heaven forever at this moment. As a consequence of this conflict, this battle, midpoint of the tribulation period, cast out of heaven, cast down to the earth. This is the first of three judgments upon Satan in the book of Revelation. Kicked out of heaven. We see that represented by the red line there on the chart on the back of your sheet. Kicked out of heaven. Second judgment of Satan against Satan is found in Revelation 20, verses 1 to 3, where he is then bound and sealed in the bottomless pit during the kingdom age, during the millennium, a thousand years in the bottomless pit. Again, represented on your chart there. And then finally, chapter 20, verse 10. We see that ultimately Satan is finally cast in the lake of fire to be tormented forever and ever. But with this defeat of Satan publicly displayed, everyone in heaven saw it. He's banished, he's defeated, he's publicly disgraced. His defeat is ultimately assured. What happens then is the hosts of heaven, we've seen them in Revelation 4 and 5 and 6 and 7, the hosts of heaven spontaneously burst, burst forth into this victorious hymn of praise. Verses 10 through 12. The hymn is divided into three stanzas. Firstly, in verse 10, praise is given to celebrate the completion of God's program. Now has come salvation and strength and the kingdom of our God and the power of his Christ for the accuser of our brethren is cast down. With Satan now cast out of heaven, his final defeat is assured. It's as good as complete. We know that the prophecy of Scripture does that. It talks about something still in the future as being completed. That's how sure it is, exactly what's happened here. He's been defeated, he's cast out of heaven. They said it's, it's, it's done and dusted. His ultimate defeat has been sealed. The earth will be delivered ultimately from Satan's control. God's strength and power will be manifest in establishing a millennial kingdom upon the earth under the authoritative reign of Christ. But then the second stanza is in verse 11, where praise is offered for the victory of the saints who overcame him, that's Satan, by the blood of the Lamb. The shed blood of Jesus Christ upon the cross provided the forgiveness of their sins and provided for them, allowed for them the imputed righteousness of Christ and a right standing before God and that protects them against Satan's accusations. They also overcame Satan, it says, by the word of their testimony, verse 11. That is the confession of their faith, their witness for Jesus Christ before this world that they belong to him. And the strength of their commitment to Christ is seen in that statement, they love not their lives unto the death. That is this, that so transformed were they by the, by the power of the gospel that these believers were willing to give up their lives for what they believed, even if it meant suffering the violent death of martyrdom. Tribulation saints, 
those who've died in the, in the tribulation, the cause of Christ, they're there in heaven. They're part of this. They love not their lives under the death. And then the third stanza is in verse 12, where those in heaven are encouraged to rejoice over Satan's expulsion, his exile to the realm of the earth, and yet the earth is given a warning. Cast out of heaven, rejoice, but woe to the inhabitants of the earth and of the sea. For the devil is come down unto you having great wrath, because he knoweth that he hath but a short time. During the seven-year tribulation period, the world is already under the wrath of God. We've already seen it. Seven scrolls of judgment poured out. Seven trumpet judgments poured out. It's already under the wrath of God, but now it must face the wrath of Satan, the great wrath of Satan. The Greek word for wrath there refers to a violent outburst of rage. Satan pours, pours out his intense hatred upon humanity. Why such intense wrath? The answer is given. Satan knows that he hath but a short time. Just a short time. He's just got three and a half years. Three and a half years for him to accomplish his purposes before he's cast in the bottomless pit. Just another three and a half years and the Lord Jesus Christ will return to set up his millennial kingdom upon the earth. Satan has raged against humanity ever, ever since he was placed in the Garden of Eden, since man was placed in the Garden of Eden. And Satan hasn't let up one bit even until this day. And as his time draws to a close, during the second half of the tribulation, his fury will increase to proportions beyond our wildest imagination. Truly hell will come on earth during these horrible last days of the tribulation period. And those who are not saved... And entering the tribulation period can expect destruction and disaster and death at the hands of this great fiery red dragon. But it doesn't have to be that way. God has provided a wonderful salvation through the perfect sacrifice, the Lamb of God slain for us. And today, if you'll hear his voice, harden not your hearts. Today is the day of salvation. Today is the accepted time. If you'll call upon the name of the Lord today. There is no better time to call upon the name of the Lord today. Because you know what happens if we don't today. Tomorrow the heart gets harder. And the heart gets harder. And the heart gets harder. And some, even little kids, grow up hearing the gospel, hearing the gospel, hearing the gospel. Are so hardened to the gospel today. At such a young age is a terrible thing. And woe to the inhabitants of the earth in that day. So as a consequence of being banished from heaven, in verses 13 to 17, we see the scene of the conflict now moves to the earth. We also see God's people Israel preserved through that conflict. Once Satan is cast out of heaven, verse 13 tells us that he will now give his full attention to persecuting the woman that brought forth the man-child. Satan hates the nation of Israel. And his intense hatred against the nation of Israel will reach its climax in the second half of the tribulation when he tries to do everything in his power to destroy them. He knows that if he could destroy Israel, if he could destroy Israel, then he could defeat God's program. He could prevent God from bringing it to a fruition. But the miraculous hand of God will be upon the nation of Israel in the midst of Satan's plot to destroy them, providing for them a way of escape, verse 14. And to the woman were given two wings of the great eagle, that she should fly into the wilderness, into her place, where she should be nourished for time and times and half a time, three and a half years, from the face of the serpent. Some scholars believe that this refers to a massive airlift to safety. It's possible. However, the term eagle's wings, we've seen that before in the scriptures too. Exodus chapter 19 verse 4 is used to describe Israel's deliverance out of Egypt. 
without the assistance of any planes or helicopters. And perhaps more likely, this phrase about being given eagle's wings simply indicates that Israel's flight to safety is swift and supernatural. Scripture doesn't identify the location of the wilderness, verse 14, where God will protect and nourish the Jewish people for three and a half years. Some biblical scholars seem to think it'll be the region of Edom because Daniel chapter 11 verse 41 says that Edom will escape the wrathful destruction of, of the Antichrist in the tribulation period. And it could also be Edom because Isaiah 63 verse 1 to 6 says that when Christ returns, he will come to Edom and take vengeance on the people of Bosra and possibly deliver the Jewish people there. At any rate, verse 15 tells us that Satan, in one last effort to exterminate Israel, will send, what does it say there, water like a flood after the woman to destroy her. There's a lot of imagery and typology and symbolism in this chapter, and so we have to think, is this literal or is it figurative? Water like a flood to destroy the woman. In the Old Testament, floods often symbolise trouble in general. And sometimes the, the word flood is even used to, to, to describe an invading army, a destroying army. You know, the enemy comes in like a flood. It's possible. But despite this, verse 16 says that Israel will be spared from Satan's attack when God somehow opens up the earth to swallow up the flood and thereby save the woman. A little bit reminiscent of Moses' description in Exodus 15, verse 12. It says, Thou stretcheth out thy right hand, and the earth swallowed them. It may be that one of the frequent earthquakes in the tribulation period causes the ground to open up and to swallow this destroying flood, whether it be a flood of water or whether it be a flood of people, soldiers, armies arrayed against Israel. We'll have to wait and see. But being unable to destroy Israel will intensify Satan's anger, causing in verse 17 to make war with the remnants of her seed who keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus Christ. Within the nation of Israel, the nation is still in unbelief, still in unbelief at this moment. They don't believe until they see Messiah come at the second advent. But there is a remnant within the nation of Israel who keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus Christ. It's probable this refers to 144,000 Jewish people who, come believe, who become believers in the tribulation period. We've seen that in Revelation chapter 7. Scattered worldwide to testify about faith in Jesus Christ. And Satan can't get to the nation of Israel and so he goes for this believing remnant. And yet, if we jump forward to chapter 14, verses 1 to 5, we see the 144,000 will be victorious over Satan's attempt to destroy them. No nation on the earth has suffered so severely or as long as the nation of Israel. And yet, we're left with no doubt as to the cause of Israel's suffering. Vivid visions here of Revelation chapter 12, we see incredible series of dramatic events that span heaven and earth, cover a period of thousands of years. There are unseen forces at work that have long been at work, and Satan is behind it all. Revelation 12 also answers some questions. Revelation 12 also helps our perspective. It introduces to us some practical points, which I think are very helpful for us every day of our lives. So let's just mention three of them in closing. First of all, Revelation chapter 12 teaches us that Israel may be blind and disobedient as a nation, but God has never forgotten them. He never will. God's character is at stake. God's reputation is at stake. God's reputation as a promise keeper is at stake. God's reputation as someone who keeps his word is at stake. God has made covenants with Israel that he will not break. 
He will remember his people. He will preserve them. He will protect them when persecution arises. He will care for them. The promises he's made to them will be fulfilled. He's promised that they will have a land. It will be fulfilled. He'll promise that they'll be the head, not the tail. It will be fulfilled. He promises that their Messiah will rule in Jerusalem over all the earth. It will be fulfilled. And although ethnic Jews haven't accepted Jesus Christ as their Messiah, yet God still preserved them as a distinct people all these thousands of years. Romans chapter, 12, chapter 11, verse 1, Paul wrote, Hath God cast away his people? God forbid, literally, may it not be. May it never be. And the fact of God's faithfulness to faithless Israel gives us hope too. The same God who stands by his promises to failing Israel is a God that stands by his promises to each of us even when we fail. He says, I'll never leave thee nor forsake thee. God's reputation as a promise keeper is at stake. Second, in Revelation chapter 12, it teaches us that although Satan is powerful and aggressive, he will not triumph. We know that Satan accuses us before God's throne day and night, chapter 12, verse 10. But at the same time, at the same time, Jesus Christ is there as our advocate. And as the accusations come day and night, so ceaselessly Jesus intercedes for us. He ever liveth to make intercession for us, Hebrews 7.25. Every moment of his life he intercedes for us, Hebrews 7.25. One day God will resurrect the saints who've died. He'll transform those that are alive and remain We'll be caught up, we'll be glorified, we'll receive immortal bodies, we'll be absolutely perfect. And from that moment onwards, Satan's mouth against us will be shut. There's no basis for his accusations anymore after that. Ultimately, he'll be cast out of heaven and the countdown of his doom will begin. Just think about your own life, examine your own life. What sins could Satan accuse you of today? What sins could Satan accuse you of today? Actually, it's a trick question. Because Romans chapter 8, verse 33 says this, Who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? Who is sh- the only one that could do that? Well, the only one that could do that is God. But what's it say? Does he accuse us? No. It says God justifies us. Who can lay anything against us? Well, God could do that, but he doesn't do that. He, he actually justifies, he doesn't accuse, he justifies us. Verse 34, who is he that condemneth? Who, who is the one that could condemn us? Well, that would be Christ. But Christ doesn't condemn us. It goes on to say Christ died for us. He doesn't condemn us. He died for us. He rose again for us. He's at the right hand of God. He ever liveth to make intercession for us. He doesn't condemn us. He prays for us. Verse 35, who can separate us from the love of Christ? So tribulation or distress or persecution, famine, nakedness, peril, sword? No. As it is written, for thy sake we're killed all the day long, we're counted as sheep for the slaughter. Nay, in all these things we're more than conquerors through him that loved us. First John chapter one, verse twenty first uh, John chapter two, verse one says, My little children, these things write unto you that you sin not. And if any man sin, We have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. We're not righteous in and of ourselves, but we have someone who is. There is someone who is righteous. And he prays and pleads for us. He advocates for us. Why aren't we condemned for our sins? It's all because of grace. All All of our sins, past, present and future, have all been paid in full by the blood of Christ. Therefore, no accusation of Satan can stick against us. No accusation of the devil, sorry, and no accusation of Satan can stick to us. No accusation of Satan can spoil our standing before God because of God's mercy and God's grace has washed us clean from our transgressions. God keeps his promises. Thirdly, Revelation chapter 12 shows us that we may be assaulted targets today 
but we need not fear. The events of Revelation chapter 12 had not yet come to pass, but in the present we know that Satan still operates against us, but under the restraining hand of God. And when we draw near to God, God will protect us from any attack that Satan can unleash against us. Remember the promise of James chapter 4 verse 7. Submit yourself therefore to God. Resist the devil, he will flee from you. Draw near to God, he will draw near to you. We don't need to fear. In the face of spiritual attacks, and sometimes it does become intense, there are passages of scripture upon which we can stand firmly and fearlessly. I'm going to give you a couple. I invite, encourage you just to write them down, just a couple of scripture references. I encourage you to write down the reference. I encourage you to, to look up the verses. I encourage you to memorize these scripture so that in the moment of temptation, when the battle is fierce, when the, when, when the attack is severe, scripture comes to mind, scripture comes to mind. We don't have the time to go and study the Bible and work out what do we do about this situation. When Jesus was tempted, when he was under attack, what did he do? The word of God came, quoted scripture. It was there ready to go. I encourage you to note these, down, these verses down, memorize them. Ephesians 6, 12 and 13. We wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. Wherefore, take unto you the whole armour of God, that ye may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand. Take the armour, you can stand. You don't have to fall, you don't have to fail, you don't have to run. You can stand. Taking hold of what God has provided for us in Christ. 2 Timothy 1 verse 7, write down the reference, this is the verse. God hath not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. 2 Timothy 1 7. 1 Peter 5 verses 8 to 10. Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary, the devil, as a roaring lion, walketh about seeking whom he may devour, whom resist steadfast in the faith. Knowing that the same afflictions are accomplished in your brethren that are in the world. But the God of all grace, who hath called us unto his eternal glory by Christ Jesus, after you suffer a little while, make you perfect, establish, strengthen, settle you. Steadfast in the faith. What that means is that through learning scripture, meditating on scripture, memorizing scripture, that tell us about God and his nature and his character and all he's provided for us in Christ, the person and work of Christ. Our faith is in that. That's what our faith is in. That's what the memorizing scripture does for us. It helps us to understand what God is really like, what God has provided for us. We believe that. It's not that memorizing scripture is, is like you know, a special thing we do. The memorizing of scripture helps us to, to, to remember what God is like. Remember, everything that God has provided for us, everything that God will do for us, he's a faithful God. He won't leave me, he won't forsake me. 1 John chapter 4, verse 1, this is the last one. This is the last one. 1 John chapter 4, verse 4. You, have God little, you are of God little children and have overcome them because greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. Okay, when the attack is intense, the truth of the situation, although we may not see it, God's truth concerning this situation is that greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. 1 John chapter 4, verse 4. Brethren, God has not appointed us to wrath. Okay, as we are in Christ, we're safe from the wrath of God. In Christ, we're protected. We won't go through the tribulation if you've accepted the Lord Jesus Christ as your saviour. And only if you've accepted Christ as your saviour. Christ is the only way of escape. God has not appointed unto, unto us unto wrath. God has provided for us everything that we need for life and godliness here and now. But not everyone here has trusted Christ as their saviour. Not everyone here is ready for the rapture. And were the rapture to happen tonight, a large percentage, no doubt, would be gone, but you'd be left behind. And that would be a, a horrible thing. It would be a horrible thing. And, 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 this, and the, the real situation has got to be worse than what we can imagine it is like as we read and study the scriptures. The reality is so much worse. Heaven will, is above and beyond better than anything we can possibly imagine. 
hell is above and beyond bad things that we could possibly imagine. Tribulation is not like anything that's ever happened before. We can't imagine how horrible it will be like. But there is salvation in Christ. We praise God for that. And the offer of salvation goes out again this evening. Whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Let's conclude with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we are grateful for the scriptures that uh, help us to not just understand the past and interpret the present, but also uh, in it we can see the future, where the future is headed. Uh, Thank you, Lord, for revealing these things to us. Fearful days that are in store for the earth. Woe to the inhabitants on the earth in that day. But uh, we thank you that there is salvation for all who will call upon the name of the Lord. Uh, We can be saved out of it, don't have to go through it, if we believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Accept him as our only Lord and Saviour. I do pray that you would work in every heart uh, here this evening. Pray there be none left behind. Uh, Pray that we be concerned for our, uh, our, our relatives, our friends. Uh, pray that we be concerned for folk in our family who don't yet know Christ. We're not sure of, that, of their salvation. I pray, Lord, that uh, assurance um, would come very soon. Uh, we pray even now. Uh, Lord, help us uh, to uh, stand against the wiles of the devil in these evil days. Uh, Lord, help us not to be ignorant of his devices. Help us not to give place to the devil. Help us to uh, stand against him sober and vigilant. Help us to be prayerful. Thank you for the reminder about that again this morning. Help us to to do all that uh, is required of us in order to stand. And uh, Lord, we uh, just rejoice uh, for the salvation that you have provided for us in Christ. We look forward to the sound of the trumpet. Uh, We're caught up to meet the Lord in the air. So shall we ever be with the Lord. We uh, look forward to that glorious day. Help us to be faithful till Jesus comes. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.